sometimes we would write blog posts just about how we built Bugsnag. It's not necessarily about error monitoring or stability management. It's about under the hood. And a lot of companies like Netflix or, or Airbnb will do that for hiring purposes. We do it because our audience is software engineers and product teams. And so the more credible we look there, the more we'll get shared and the more people will be tempted to sign up for Bugsnag. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. Today we have James Smith, who's the founder of Bugsnag, which provides an automated crash detection platform for web and mobile applications. It's processed billions of application crashes from thousands of top tech companies. Uh, and then you have companies like Walmart and Genentech. So James, how's it going? Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and what your story is? Absolutely. Yeah. So you can probably tell by my accent, it gives me away a little bit that I'm not from San Francisco where Bugsnag's based. Originally from the UK, moved out to San Francisco in 2009 to join a, a Y Combinator startup called HayZap as the CTO there. And yeah, kind of always been into technology, always been into solving problems. And my background is in software engineering. So both my co-founder now at Bugsnag, Simon, and I have a math and CS degree. And so it kind of was inevitable that I'd end up out in the Bay Area. And so we ended up trying to solve this problem that we'd had ourselves in our previous jobs, in our previous careers, when you're building software, whether it be for a startup or for a, a huge company. For example, I used to work for Bloomberg in London. Things break. It's, it happens. It's inevitable. And as software engineers or engineering managers, you always want to know why things are broken or how badly things are broken or how many customers are impacted by particular bugs or problems. And... Uh, so about four or five years ago now, we said, you know what, let's build something that will solve that problem. So created Bugsnag out of a, a bedroom in the Sunset District here in San Francisco to address that problem. And so we kind of set out to solve the problem of tell me what's broken, tell me how many customers are impacted and help me help me solve that problem. So kind of been building that business for a few years. Awesome. And, and where, where's, I guess, in terms of you guys, uh, in terms of pricing and how do you guys make money first and foremost? Yeah, well, so we're a subscription revenue business, which is, I love being in a uh, subscription space. We charge uh, monthly or annually, depending on uh, the contract. And really, this, the cost of Bugsnag scales with uh, how big your organization is or how many crashes you have. Uh, so there's a little bit of an incentive to uh, to fix your crashes and, and therefore get a cheaper deal with Bugsnag. But uh, yeah, we, we, we are a tool that, that teams, engineering teams will, will pay for on a, on a monthly or, or annual basis. So yeah, it's... it's uh, just like a tool like a GitHub or a, a, a Jira that you, you have as part of your uh, engineering uh, toolkit, Bugsnags in that stack as well. Great. Yeah, I'm looking at the pricing page right now. You have free and then you have 20, uh, 29 bucks a month, 59 bucks a month, and then you have the contact us for above 150,000 events per month. Is the reason for the smaller pricing because 
we were just talking about Saster a little bit ago, but you know the theme at Saster is everybody's going up market, right? They're all trying to charge, you know, mid market enterprise pricing. So is the reason? I guess I'll just ask you directly: What's the reason for having the smaller pricing? Because people are trying to get away from that. Yeah, I mean, for us, uh, we have a, a scalable pricing model. So what tends to happen with Bugsnag is people will uh, land and expand. We're a very, very much land and expand business. So people will come in, they'll kick the tires, they'll they'll set up a Bugsnag account for a side project or one of their uh, smaller applications, and then it will grow internally within the company. And so as more engineering teams or more applications are being monitored with Bugsnag, the higher volume of crash reports there are. So our pricing pretty much uh, if you see on the on the pricing page there we'll have entry price the entry price is for a, a certain number of crash reports per day or per month that are coming in but actually as you scale and as your usage of bugsnag scales we actually have uh, higher tiers above that in each of those columns so what we tend to do is though we tend to make it frictionless to try out bugsnag so obviously most subscription companies have some kind of uh, trial or freemium model our freemium model really is uh, to give back to the community. Our free plan, it has only a few crash reports per day. I think it's like 250 crash reports per day. But if you're running a side project, a hobby project, you know, we'd rather have people were using something than nothing. So we'd much rather people use Bugsnag for free. But if you're using it for a real company or a real engineering team, you can get started on those cheap prices and grow with uh, your usage. So it's basically a low friction way of trying it out. We the kind of pricing scales up quite a bit as um, as your volume of crash reports increases. Great. So my understanding is, I mean, even if you capture the free users, there's a small percentage of them that eventually might become mid market to enterprise, where they they will become worth a good amount of money to you. But I mean, it's it's also good for the branding aspect as well, right? Absolutely. And you know, something interesting about our our industries, you know, a lot of the time we're brought in by individual contributors or engineering managers at companies who want to make a change and want to make a difference. And a lot of the time, software engineers will have their own side projects or weekend projects. I know I do. And so, you know, I'll hack on a, a little kind of a movie finder app or something like that. And I want to know if it's broken still, even though it's only got a few customers or a few users. But then what I'll do is I'll come into the office and I'll say, hey, I've been using this really cool tool on my side projects. We should check it out for work. Actually, that happens all the time. Word of mouth is, even at scale with mid-market and above, word of mouth has been very strong for us. Love it. Okay, great. Well, can you tell us how the company is doing today, perhaps revenue, user growth, anything like that? Yeah, so we kind of keep revenue as a number under wraps pretty much, but um, we've doubled revenue every year we've been in existence, and we intend to keep doing that as long as we can. One thing that's that, that we can talk about is the number of paying organizations using us. You know, We have plenty of free customers and freemium customers. I think there's 100,000 software developers who have, we focus in terms of growing the company and growing revenue is paying organizations. So we have 4,500 paying organizations using Bugsnag right now, and that varies broadly from tiny uh, one or two dev shops all the way up to uh, companies that have thousands and thousands of software engineers so yeah uh, trying to trying to keep uh, the land and expand aspect of the business very strong as well word of mouth land and expand are, are very cheap things to scale uh, candidly it's not like we're spending a lot of money on paid acquisition or we have a huge sales team we have just two people on the sales team and one person on the success team to support this kind of large and growing business so right yeah it, it's i can talk a little bit about growth but we, we uh, are kind of cagey about revenue numbers yeah no problem at all and, and so the, the enterprise pricing i mean what does that usually start at and how high does that go up to so uh we have customers paying uh in the the mid six figures for our product in on an annual contract but typically we, we are kind of 
rule of enterprise. It's not the classic definition of enterprises, but when do we assign a customer success manager? And so we assign a customer success manager if you're paying $10,000 a year or more. Uh, so that's kind of when you fall into our enterprise bucket. Great. Okay. All right. So uh, I guess going back into kind of how you got started in the first place, I was reading an interview I think you did with Josh Pigford and then uh, being a gamer myself, I read something up about uh, Duke Nukem. So can you tell us about that story? <laughs> Oh wow, that that takes me back. Yeah, so yeah, I'm a Quaker, so uh, I'm a Duke newcomer too. Oh wow, there's not many of us left. Uh, I, I think uh, I haven't I haven't busted open an internet game of Duke Nukem in a while now. But <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm a I'm a really curious guy, and I'm I'm a kind of a, a builder at heart. And when I first got into technology and and uh, and and figuring out how to build things it was out of necessity it was like i really wish i could do this i really wish i could do this and one of the things i was super into as a kid was was playing duke nukem multiplayer and at the time you could only play via modem play this is really uh, putting an age on me right now you can say i remember yep totally lan and modem Exactly. You had to dial up someone else's uh, computer. And, and, you know, if, if my mom wanted to make a phone call, it would uh, disconnect my game. And you would get really mad if she picked up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so uh, we had this, uh, a friend of mine and I were like, uh, we discovered someone hacked together a way to do TCP IP, I, basically internet play, uh, normal internet, not modem play for Duke Nukem. And we we're like, this is great. And, uh, but there was nothing really out there for like tournaments or ladders or competitions. And so we made something called Duke connect back in the day, hacked together out of Perl scripts and, uh, and, and, and terrible markup that basically allowed you to enter. If you played one V one, you could enter who won the game. And so it made a tournament ladder for Duke Nukem. It was the first one that was ever out there because it was this new technology at the time. And I had no idea what I was doing. That was the first lines of code that I ever wrote. It was in some, dirty pearl script that i made and i was like wait a minute i can build something this is not so hard this is it, behind the scenes it looks ugly but people using the product don't know that and so it kind of demystified the the process of building software or building products and yeah it, it got my curiosity peaks so and moving on from like playing with legos to playing with with code like i think a lot of tech people do and product people do and so it was a great way for me to exercise my uh, take one of my interests and turn it into a product. I don't, not many people used it. It was pretty niche back in the back in the day, but um, it, it was fun to turn something from idea into reality. I, I think. I mean, you just made me realize something. How, how powerful this! I mean, the key takeaway here is that basically it's, it it gives you the confidence to to continue on just right after you start. And then, kind of related, I'm not sure how old you were at the time, but I, I think uh, you know I, I got my first computer when I was eight or nine years old. And I built an MP3 site, and that that showed me the possibilities. But um, I, I think we all can go in different directions. And now, you know, I I end up in marketing. You end up building products, right? So um, we all start in different ways. I think uh, you know, you just you start you start leveling up from there. I think that's the key takeaway, right? Yeah, it, it demystifies things, and 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 I think you know whether you're building a company or you're building a product or you're building uh, the mark working on the marketing side of things. It's all about building. And I think that um, I talk about this when I do conferences, sometimes conference talks about open source. I used to be really into building open source libraries and open source contributions back in the day. I don't have as much time these days to do that. But one of the things I always used to talk about in conferences was, hey, it's not that bad. Go and put yourself out there and see what sticks. Some of my libraries that I made for uh, open source uh, community, one of them was an HDP client for um, Android. It was the code wasn't great. It wasn't the best code out there. But I 
just put it out there and people liked it and i was like wow okay so if you put it out there and it's like field of dreams right if you if you build it they'll come it's not too dissimilar to that and as long as you you can explain why you built something and why you think it's better than everything else out there i think people get excited about it so one of the things i talk about a lot and encourage people to do a lot is is just put yourself out there whether it's writing or code or whatever and see what people think love it okay and you talked about expansion revenue a little early i mean landing and expanding so i mean can you give some kind of case study i don't think you need to name the company but perhaps like let's say someone started at uh free or team um you know, what what's you know maybe start with you know one person and then uh what's like the best scenario you've seen they've scaled to like thousands of people like i don't know yeah i mean there's there's kind of two two ways that that, that land expense well not thousands i'm sorry events thousand events oh i mean we're talking there's, there's customers i definitely won't name names here but there's customers that are sending hundreds of millions of crash reports per day in some consumer applications can get pretty crashy at, at times so it, there's kind of two ways that we have expansion revenue happen one of them is you increase the number of people on your team that are using bug snack so it gets broader distribution inside of your organization right the other one is uh, rolling out across multiple applications and so <clears throat> the really typical case we see is especially on the mobile side right um, maybe the android team at a company will uh, sign up for bug snag and maybe that will turn into a 24k deal $24,000 a year deal and we're like, great, that's 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 awesome. We've got um, they're loving the product. They're they're paying us some uh, some money. And what tends to happen is the Android team sit next to the iOS team, and so the iOS team are in Slack or Jira, and they see all these messages coming in, say bug detected, bug snags detected a bug. And they're like, wait, we want that. That's really cool. Why don't we have that? And then so we'll get a, a phone call or an email from the head of iOS, and they'll be like, look, can we try this out? We want to give this a try. Uh, and then maybe the iOS and Android teams are both building in. React Native, for example. And so they sit very closely to the front-end team because they're using similar React technologies. And then the JavaScript team are like, wait, we need this over here. This would be great. And so there's this kind of, um, it's like viral almost in, in between teams. Uh, you'll see the impact that Bugsnag has. It's very prominent, I think, in the development and product building process. And other teams will be like, okay, I've got to try this out, which is great for us because there's no better advocate for your product than someone in the company that you're trying to sell to effectively. And so we don't really need to do a lot of selling in that respect. But kind of to, to your point earlier, the coolest example I think that that, that happened was not quite a free plan to a, a huge deal, but uh, $29 a month to six-figure deal with a, a large consumer mobile company. So they were using it on a side project, a side app, and it kind of had that same effect. They um, had an internal mobile app that they built and, you know, we sent them a couple emails here and there saying, hey, you know, this might be good for your main mobile app. But, you know, <laughs> just very, very soft, very kind of success driven rather than salesy and spammy. And uh, one day, just suddenly the, the, the main application, this huge uh, uh, top 10 uh, app store application suddenly came online. And we were like, oh, wow. So it, went, it just jumped. Uh, it went, it, you know, orders of magnitude up in spend within uh, within 24 hours. Um, and obviously, we then have to talk to a few more people. We talk to the procurement team. We have to go through the some more of the processes there. But the, the, the people who were the decision makers on the tech team decided, we're going to use this. Let's go. And so sometimes it's hard to predict, actually, when we're going to get a huge spike in in traffic or a huge spike in in, uh, in usage from a particular customer. Love it. Okay. 
And, and so you, you mentioned earlier, I mean, I think I was listening to another podcast um, recently around SaaS, and they talked about kind of, I think as actually David Scott talking about separating church and state, where you have the success team and a sales team not necessarily tied together. So you mentioned earlier that this company that signed up, they started on something smaller first. Was it your, from a process perspective, was it your sales team reaching out or was it your success team reaching out? So for, it, it kind of depends how you structure the team. The separating your church and state concept makes total sense to me if you're taking the traditional sales team model where I'll give you an example of the counter to that. So our sales team has to be consultative and has to be success driven from scratch. In fact, my uh, VP of sales and success comes from a customer success background. So we take a slightly different approach in the Land and Expand has been so, so strong for us. And our audience is uh, very opinionated, right? If you if you get, uh, like software engineers have a lot of power inside product organizations and they can pick and choose which tools they want. And so for us, we don't want to come across as slimy or sleazy at all. We want to make sure that we're supporting the buying process rather than forcing through. So obviously we need to be there when we need to be there for, for the sales side of things. But the sales team are, are very good at knowing when uh, our customers haven't integrated properly or knowing when they need to sit down with the success team or our customer engineering team, which is our support team we call customer engineering, by the way, because most of the things you need to deal with are inside someone else's application. So they end up being quite technical. So everyone has a success mindset and a success background. Obviously, when it comes to dealing with procurement and infosec and legal and all the things that you have to move away from our core audience uh, of software engineers and product teams, we need to have those skills that, that, that good uh, uh, SaaS sales teams have. But success first and then knowing when to turn on the the, 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 uh, the sales skills, effectively, if that makes sense. So, yeah, it's a different approach, but I, I definitely agree with the um, the, the overall overarching uh, idea behind it. Right. Okay. Great. And then, so... You, in, in terms of acquiring customers today, I mean, you, you got the land expand model. It seems like a lot of people are talking about, it. I mean, what else is working for you in terms of acquiring new customers? So uh, it, again, I guess this works really well for our audience, but we've always had great success with um, events. So from local meetups to, to larger conferences, as well as content. So we try to be, we have two rules of marketing. Uh, one of them is be classy and the other one is be credible. And so we're not trying to fake anything. We're not trying to BS anyone with anything that we're building. We're trying to build credibility that, hey, we're this is a problem that's worth solving and we're the people to solve it. And I think it's the same approach that a lot of companies like Zendesk have, have taken and, and, and had great success with. You're not selling to procurement, you're selling to the user. And in order to do that, you need to be the thought leader, the champion and the expert in the space. So we've always tried to do that. And so conferences have been great for us. So the interesting thing about conferences is we actually find a lot of our larger customers via conferences. So we'll go to conferences like RubyConf or PyCon or uh, DroidCon. And at these conferences, you either get the thought leaders and the people who are speaking and the experts there who love to talk to us, or you'll get someone like the head of Android from Lyft, for example, who's been uh, sent there to hone their skills or to figure out what new technologies there are at the conference to look at. And so we actually end up with a lot of uh, growth and customers through conferences. Content is all about that credibility side. We are solving some really hard problems at Bugsnag that we're trying to abstract away. We don't want our customers to really have to worry about some of the hard problems we're solving. But by showing we are the experts and showing we understand how to build 
a product and technology like this, I think people get excited about it and it really fuels that word of mouth aspect. Sometimes we would write blog posts just about how we built Bugsnag. It's not necessarily about error monitoring or stability management. It's about under the hood. And a lot of companies like Netflix or, or Airbnb will do that for hiring purposes. We do it because our audience is software engineers and product teams. And so the more credible we look there, the more we'll get shared and the more people will be tempted to sign up for Bugsnag or say, oh, what was that company that wrote that really cool blog post when they're ready to pick a tool like Bugsnag? So that's been our two kind of core sources of growth. And when you when you do conferences, how much are you typically spending? I mean, how do you justify the cost to, let's say, your CFO? Yeah, so it's actually... Uh, relatively easy for us to measure. We spend, we go to really small conferences like, what's a good example here? Like a, a React Native conference, right? So this new technology, React Native, it's going to have 500 attendees. It's pretty small. Um, they, they're in the low thousands, right? They're, they're like two to five K to attend and have a booth at these conferences. And we'll easily make that back on day one of the conference, like straight away. We don't even kind of spend a lot of time measuring the SMB impact. Of, of how much money we made from our self-service customers from going to these conferences. But what we tend to do is we tend to look at the sales-assisted customers. So let's say we, we meet a Comcast uh, at one of these conferences. We know that that deal size will be much, much more than 4 or 5K. Uh, and so we can easily call that conference ROI positive just from measuring that aspect. We do do some larger conferences like uh, Velocity and uh, at the AWS conference. They are a little bit harder to measure, but they have a massive brand impact for us as well. So really, most of the time, we stick to the grassroots conferences, the conferences where people are being sent to figure out what's the specific correct way to solve my problem in this space or in this technology. Wonderful. So my, my let's see. So just to clarify, you go, you're really aiming for mostly kind of the smaller niche conferences where the cost isn't that high. So you can do multiple ones. Yeah. Um, and then you, I guess, what percent are you doing kind of the smaller niche ones versus what percent versus the like really big ones? So I think we did, uh, last year we did 18 conferences and I think three of them were, uh, AWS uh, reInvent was the biggest one. And then we did, uh, Velocity and QCon. Uh, so the three, uh, one massive conference, two medium-sized conferences, and the rest were very much 200 to 1,000 attendee conferences. The ROI on those conferences is so high for us, it's just totally worth continuing to do those. Right. And when you say so high, I mean, what kind of ROI do you think you're getting? I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a conference that we went, I mean, the React Native conference is a great example. There's a customer that we met at the React Native conference that closed as a high five-figure deal uh, within two weeks after the conference. And I think we spent under 5K to attend that conference. Wow. That isn't an unusual story for us. And so that's an annual contract with this customer. And hopefully they'll continue to pay, you know, year on year on year if they're happy with the company. We have very low churn. And so, yeah, we it's kind of, we don't worry about the exact dollar in, dollar out, as long as we can measure the large successes out of these conferences. And almost every single time we'll have one or two successful big customers signing up right okay wonderful so working towards wrapping up here what is well what's one big struggle you face while growing bug snag oh you know what the the hardest thing i think is knowing when to knowing when to step on the gas so because we've done so well on on land and expand and word of mouth and kind of the, the more organic growth techniques Sometimes there's been opportunities that, you know, we have, we've seen and we've stepped on the gas at the right time and sometimes we've missed it. And so things like uh, SEO and SEM around a new platform or a new technology that's launched that we can jump on. Um, it's sometimes hard to know when exactly to pull the trigger. 
especially since we've done so well on the organic growth side of things. But I mean, really, I imagine you hear this from a lot of uh, SaaS companies as well. I say this to everyone. The two hardest things I think in a startup, a subscription revenue startup, are hiring and pricing. Uh, Hiring for us in particular, because our audience is so technical. So every time we hire someone on the marketing team or the sales team uh, who doesn't necessarily have a technical background, we need to make sure they understand our audience and, and, and respect our audience. And pricing, just because I think that's basically the hardest problem in any SaaS company. Uh, I think that you're here differently. Why do you think it's so hard? I think that there is a balance, right? If you Sometimes you'll say, I think people tend to undercharge in general for their SaaS products. I think once you know you have product market fit, there's something in your gut where you're like, oh, but you know, maybe we shouldn't increase the price. But almost always you should increase the price. We've always seen every time we've increased the price, um, I think it's been fair and reasonable and based on the fact that our product has evolved. Uh, Bugsnag has got a lot better over time. But you know, you feel sometimes, oh, it's risky. It's, I feel uncomfortable about this. But every time we've increased the price, we've had great positive feedback about it. And ACVs have been going a lot up a lot over time. But really, I think pricing as a dimensionality problem rather than is it is this too cheap or too expensive? Making sure that the dimensions of pricing align with the value that customers are seeing. So we charge based on the number of crash reports that you're seeing. That tends to scale with the uh, number of apps you're monitoring and the scale of your business. So actually, that scales very well. But if we pick the different dimension, how we know that this other dimension was better? So we've been through just multiple iterations over time. So I just think it's a continuous thing. You just need to keep testing and testing and testing. And how often were you testing in the early days? I mean, like, uh, well, I guess let's do that first. So how often were you testing pricing in the early days? Let's say the first one or two years. So I think we've changed dimensionality of pricing, which is a lot of effort and very scary, about four times in five years. But in terms of the iterative approach, we've tweaked the price points and which features are available in each tier pretty continuously. We probably tweak that about four or five times per year. So we're talking probably 30, 40 times total that we've made any changes to pricing. But yeah, it's for us, the the only way we can know what's right is just by testing it and trying it and throwing it out there. So yeah, not being afraid of that, which is very, very scary as a founder to do. Well said. Okay. And what uh, what's one new tool that you've added in the last year that's added a lot of value to your life? So it could be like a Peloton bike. <laughs> so uh, I talk about this all the time, and I feel like that I should be on commission for these guys. But there's a there's a couple of tools that I use every day that aren't necessarily the coolest or sexiest technologies out there, but I love them. One of them is a product called uh, uh, Carter. Carter. It used to be called eShares. It's um it's a way of doing cap table management. So as a founder and as someone who is thinking about stock options and and uh, cap tables all the time. They've basically 100% solved this problem. It's one of the nicest products I've ever used, and yet it's solving quite a dull problem. No diss to their problem space, but they've nailed it. Their product is excellent. And the other one is Gusto, which is a payroll product. Again, how how boring is payroll as a concept? But as a product guy, I just respect really well-crafted products. And so when I see well-crafted products being solved in areas that aren't necessarily sexy or exciting, uh, I have a lot of respect for those companies. So they're, they're my two favorite boring tools that have just nailed it and executed perfectly on the product side. Wonderful. I'm looking at Carta right now. I mean, how often do you look at this thing and how much does it cost? So, I mean, it's, it's relatively inexpensive. I can't remember how much we're paying, but it's in probably the low hundreds per month. But like I've been, uh, my previous startup that I was at, I wasn't a founder, but it was such a an ordeal just pulling up a cap table. You'd have to talk to your CFO. They'd have some 
gross spreadsheet that wouldn't make sense. You couldn't pull out reports, all that kind of stuff. But actually, the the positive experience was missing as well. Like when you hire someone and onboard someone as a new employee, it should feel emotionally exciting to get issued stock options. And I think Carter does a really good job of that. So I think I'm I'm probably only in there like two times a week. But every time I'm in there, I'm like, that's exactly right. They've nailed it. It's perfect. Cool. All right. And what is one must-read book you'd recommend to everyone? Ooh. Um, so uh, there's a – if no one's – if you haven't read it before, uh, Cialdini's uh, Influence yep. is fantastic. Now, I use this to learn how other people are, are using communication techniques with me. So if you're ever on a sales call and someone talks to you, you can see some of the patterns that people are being used. So almost like using that as a defensive tool uh, is very helpful. And it also helps me understand when working with procurement teams as well, how they negotiate and how they work on the influence side of things. So it's a classic book. I know most people probably have it on their bookshelves, but it's almost for me like a it's a reference book almost. It's a very basic thing to to, to have if you don't have it. Yeah, great book. Must read for, for anyone, especially for, for marketers. So James, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? So yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm, I'm Loop J, L-O-O-P-J on Twitter. Or uh, we still, even though we're getting a, a decent size as a company now, I still keep an eye on, on, on the Bugsnag Twitter as well. So uh, if you want to tweet at Bugsnag and say hi, I'm there as well. James, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.